This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. We've been gone for a couple of weeks and been doing rebroadcasts, but we're here today and so glad that you can be with us. If you have a specific question as you've been studying God's Word or a challenge that you're facing in your spiritual life and you'd like biblical counsel on, well, if we can help, all you need to do, again, is pick up the phone locally. It's 843-525-1859. The 843-exchange is 525-1859. That's the number. Or you can uh, email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you do call, you're welcome to simply dictate your question if you don't want to go on the air live, or we're happy to receive it, uh, and we can discuss it one-on-one here. So welcome back, Rick. Good to have you here again, and uh, let's go ahead and jump in, by God's grace, with both feet. All right, Pastor Kirby from Beaufort writes, I've been studying baptism quite a bit lately, mainly to research how it is used by certain organizations such as the Church of Christ as a necessary act for salvation. Verses like Mark 16, 16, Acts 2.38, Romans 6.4, 1 Peter 3.21, or 3.21 rather. I know that water baptism comes after salvation as public confession of Christ. In my research, however, even some that don't use scripture such as Acts 2.38 and Mark 16.16 as reason for water baptismal regeneration say that those two scriptures are both examples of spiritual baptism and not water baptism at all. I have absolutely understood those to mean water baptism after salvation for meaning because of remission of sins in Acts 2.38, for example. Furthermore, I have heard through researching that because Acts is a transitional book, that and the passage Acts 2.38 is referring to only Jews, and that is why they had to be baptized in water before receiving the Holy Spirit, but that it changed only when the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius with his family received the Holy Spirit before baptism as salvation came to the Gentiles. I understand the doctrine of New Testament baptism. I understand spiritual baptism, but I cannot understand the thought process here in these two scriptures, specifically as examples of spiritual baptism. I have also never heard that second interpretation of Acts 2.38 that's discussed above. Have you ever heard these interpretations before? Can you shed some light on why people may interpret these scriptures like this? Thank you very much. All right. Well, let me uh, respond, Kirby. You've got a great question here in terms of Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, and the text from 1 Peter. Uh, These are verses that, unfortunately, are often used out of context to justify baptism as part of the plan of salvation. And the Church of Christ is known for doing this. And uh, sometimes the disciples of Christ, those two denominations, are kind of sister denominations. They came from the same source. And as soon as I say this, there's always an exception to the rule. 
you may find some local church that calls itself the Church of Christ, and they do not believe that baptism is part of the plan of salvation. But typically in a Church of Christ, they'll say, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. And so they make this four-step process. Well, repentance and belief is the flip side of the same coin. When Peter is asked here in Acts 2.38, basically, brethren, what must we do? What must we do to be saved? In one word, he says, repent, change your mind. And the word repent can mean different things in different contexts. It all depends on uh, the situation that's at hand. He's addressing Jewish people in Acts 2 who said Jesus was only a man, and uh, they asked for his death. And Peter demonstrates using the Scripture that he was more than a man, that he was God in human flesh, and they are just like convicted to the core. And what must we do? Change your mind. You said he's only a man. Embrace him as Lord and Savior. And so let's take the Acts 2.38 passage first. And again, this is on the day of Pentecost. And uh, we're told when they heard this, Acts 2.37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the uh, the said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is basically what they need to do. Interestingly, when Paul is asked the same question by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? In one word, he says, believe. So when you repent, you truly believe. When you change your mind about Jesus, about your sin, about yourself, and you believe you're, you're born again. Now, the sticky word here is the word for. Let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And the Church of Christ and other groups like them that are preaching a different gospel, listen, you cannot embrace the teaching of the Church of Christ, that denomination, that teaches baptism as part of the plan of salvation and be considered a true Christian. That is an aberration in the plain, simple truth of the gospel. Paul deals with a similar erroneous uh, position where people don't add 100 works or 50 works, but just one work to the plan of salvation in Galatians. And he said if you add a single work, in that case circumcision, you are distorting the gospel, you're preaching a different gospel and you are damning people to hell, and you are damning yourself to hell. And so Paul makes it very, very clear that not even one single work saves. You know, sometimes in English we use the word for. uh, I give you a medal for your bravery. I don't mean in order to be brave, as the Church of Christ interprets it in their thinking. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for or in order for the forgiveness of sins. No, I give you a medal because you are brave. And that's really the sense as it's being used here. It's because of bravery. Well, the the Greek word here is the word ace. And interestingly, um, it, you, if you transliterate it, E-I-S. And Jesus uses this same word where it has the idea of because of. And so um, I'm turning here over to Luke's gospel. And Luke, of course, wrote not only the gospel according to Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. Luke actually gave us more of the New Testament than any single writer because these two books together are longer than all the Pauline epistles. And so Jesus is dealing with some unbelieving men in his day, and he says this in Luke, uh, here it is, 11, verse uh, 32. 
the men of Nineveh, Jesus said, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at, and it's the word ace, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, or you might say because of the preaching of Jonah. And so that's really the sense behind this word ace. That's how it's being used in Acts 2.38. It's a little uh, particle, as we call it, as linguist. It means against, among, at, upon, onto, because of. And so they're baptized for the forgiveness of sins, not in order to be forgiven, but because they are forgiven. And we do the same thing today because baptism is a public expression of the death, burial, and the resurrection. The other text you ask is uh, Mark 16, 16. There it says, he who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, please understand, Jesus is not teaching that baptism saves you. If he was teaching that, then this verse would read, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved and not been baptized shall be condemned. But the Lord never mentions baptism as a basis of condemnation because salvation is based on grace alone through faith alone on one who has already paid the full debt for our sin. But the Lord here assumes that a true child of God will confess their faith. Jesus talks about if someone is not willing to confess me before men, he'll never confess them before my Father who's in heaven. And that New Testament confession in the first century was typically done by baptism. So Jesus is saying, if you believe, and if you truly believe, you'll publicly identify with me, you'll confess me via baptism, you have the real genuine article, you'll be saved. But if you disbelieve, because remember, salvation is based on belief or unbelief. Uh, You are saved when you believe. You are lost when you choose to disbelieve. And so, uh, again, the, the order here, too, is plain. Believe and then be baptized. Baptism is always done after conversion. Um, it's believe and then be baptized, not get baptized and later believe. And man has reversed the order, unfortunately. It's very sad, and that's the day we live in. But again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So the gospel, whatever the gospel is, is how God saves us. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is how God saves people. That's how he saves us. And so if he saves us on the basis of the gospel, we want to know what the gospel is. Well, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, and then he defines it in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And interestingly, in that same letter in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul definitively separates um, baptism from the plan of salvation. The other text you mentioned is from 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, where he says, uh, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the word corresponding to in the New American Standard is the Greek word antitupos. And antitype is a word that is... Uh, a, a picture, you know what a type is. A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. And any type is a is the stamp. If I had a stamp that was the type and I pressed it on the paper, the anti-type, the impression would be what was on the paper. And so baptism or immersion is an anti-type. It's a mirror image 
of an earlier type, namely Noah's Ark, which becomes a picture in the Old Testament. I have a whole sermon on this in my Genesis series of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So Peter is not saying that baptism saves us, but that baptism corresponds, it pictures, it symbolizes, it figures, it's an antitype of what does save us, namely the death, burial, and the resurrection. Now, to probe a little bit further into your question, it is true that uh, Acts is a transitional book, and on occasion there are some things that are done to Acts that is a unique time frame. But you draw your epistle, you draw your doctrine from the epistles. That's not to say you can't get doctrine from the book of Acts. You can. There's a number of doctrines that are established from the book of Acts, but they need to be weighed in light of the epistles. Um, But the gift of the Holy Spirit is given when you repent, when you believe. And when you believe, you are, typically they did it the same hour, often the same day. Peter is standing uh, outside of the temple area here in Acts 2 on a place that we typically refer to as the Southern Steps. And right outside of the Southern Steps, there's all these mikvahs. They are pools of water where people would be baptized on that particular event. So uh, this is an important truth. Uh, Baptism uh, happens after salvation. The Spirit is given at the moment of conversion. That's what you see all the way through the Acts. There's one exception in Acts, in Acts 8. I have a message on that. Why does God allow the Spirit of God to be given after conversion in Acts 8 to Samaritans? Simply said, because he didn't want two churches, and he wanted the apostles to put their hand of approval on that work of a potentially hated people. Um, but in the epistles, like Ephesians 1, 13 through 15, it's clear the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit, such that Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. So the Holy Spirit is given at the moment, the instant you truly, genuinely receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Great question. By the way, this is covered in detail and many other questions on baptism on our Back to Basics series. You can find it at Search the Scriptures. And one of the lessons there is what the Bible says about baptism. I think you'd find it helpful. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. And our first caller this morning dictated their question. They'd like to know why in Matthew 4, verses 3 through 4, this is seen as the devil tempting Christ. He could have changed stone to bread, so why didn't he? Well, it's it's a good question. Um you know, let me just turn there. The temptation of Christ is found in two central passages in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. And uh, what we find here is we're told that Jesus was led up. Then when? Then after um, he had uh, been baptized publicly, uh, not for the reason we are, but publicly pictured the whole reason that he was coming to this earth. Then Jesus went up by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is leading him into the wilderness. So he's in the wilderness of Judea. It's a desert kind of region. Uh, It's hills and mountains, but, I mean, they're just barren. It's just uh, not much grows there. And he's there, and he's tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here it is, the tempter, the evil one, 
says, if you are the son of God. And in, in Greek, it's what we call a first-class conditional statement, meaning he's not questioning whether he is. He knows that he is. And that, by the way, is the nature of the temptation. Uh, Satan couldn't come to say to me and say, well, if you're a true Christian, if you're really born again like you say you are, then take these stones and turn them into loaves of bread. I couldn't do that because I'm not God. Only God could do something like that. And so consistent with what he uh, describes Christ to be, command these stones to become bread. And of course, um, this is something that would be apart from God's will. This is not what God is asking his son to do. He's being led by the Spirit. And Jesus makes it plainly clear that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. And then the devil takes him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and he has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. That's a corner of the uh, temple mount. And uh, he says, if you're the son of God, and again, he knows that he is, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and he will command his angels concerning you. And that is true. That's a verse of scripture, but he's really taking it out of context. Um, Satan omitted from Psalm ninety-one twelve the words, in all your ways. And so he takes a verse out of context, but it's not part of God's will for Jesus to jump from the Temple Mount. Why do I know? Because he's being led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so the devil wanted him basically to make a big show. Hey, here's your chance. You're the Messiah. Show everybody. Do this fantastic thing. But that's not how Christ presented himself. That's not how the prophets wrote the Messiah would present himself. He didn't come to... uh, Jerusalem on some white stallion, he will at his second coming. He entered in on the day he officially proclaimed himself as Israel's Messiah on a donkey. Uh, That was laughable by the Romans, but that's what he did because he came in humility. So in each of these temptations, and by the way, they really categorize all kinds of temptations, which is why the writer to the Hebrews can say that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You say, well, was Jesus ever tempted to watch a dirty television show since there was no television? Obviously not, but every kind of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, Christ meets in this temptation. And you could take every temptation that people experience, and they would fall under one of these three categories. These are obviously unique to the Lord God himself because only the Lord God could pull off something like this. But he's being led by the Spirit. He's going to obey the Spirit. And he's going to obey God's plan, God's purpose, God's will, and the prophecies that are written about him in the Old Testament scriptures. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. Don't forget, if you uh, had a question or didn't catch all of the answer, you can always visit our website, wagp.net. Click on the Archives for the Bible line button and uh, listen to it all over again. Pierce from Beaufort writes, Why do Christians worship on Sunday and not Saturday? Wasn't the change initiated by the Roman Catholics? Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2 state the apostles came together to break bread, take up a collection, and Paul preached on the first day of the week, but it doesn't directly say that they worship the Lord. Did the apostles keep the Sabbath, and does that mean Christians are still required to keep the Sabbath? Should Christians even work on the Sabbath? Well, it's a good question. So let's go back to the beginning, and let me take just a few minutes to set this up. Um, In the Decalogue found in 
uh, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Decalogue meaning 10, Deca, it's a Greek word for 10. Um, we're speaking of the Ten Commandments, and so we often call them the Decalogue. And the fourth commandment is you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. And so God is very, very specific. The Sabbath day, which is the seventh day, in six days he created the world, and the seventh day he rested, um, he made it very clear that the Sabbath was Saturday. Now, you kind of answered your own question here, uh, and it's, um, it's a straw man that Roman, uh, not Roman Catholics, but Seventh-day Adventists uh, create to say that, you know, they worship obviously on the seventh day, on the Saturday, on the Sabbath, and they say, well, the Roman Catholic Church invented the Sabbath. No, they did not. It has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. It is true that there's an emperor by the name of Constantine who um, made the seventh day a day where people could worship freely. Um, He made Christianity the official religion. I'm not sure that Constantine was a true believer, but it was certainly politically advantageous for him at this time in the growth of the church and the empire for him to um, set aside uh, Sunday as a day to worship. But he's actually only affirming a truth that is already taught in God's word. And so in Exodus 20, God affirms that we are to worship on the seventh day. And then in Exodus chapter uh, 31 and 32, he delineates why. And he calls it specifically the Sabbath day, a covenant between him and his people. This is a covenant that God made between the Jewish people in Israel. So it is under the Old Testament law. And Christ, who's the Lord of the Sabbath, made it very clear that his church, his people, that is now an international community made up of Jews and Gentiles and people from every tribe and tongue and nation across the planet, that they are to worship on the first day of the week. And so you find this in a number of um, explanations that are unfolded in the New Testament. Whenever Christ, for instance, appears in his resurrected form, Every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. Those are all those great commission passages. He meets on the first day of the week. Um, The only time in the uh, Bible that the Sabbath is mentioned from Acts through Revelation is for purely evangelistic purposes. So remember, the early church was all Jewish, so you'd expect that they would gather on a very Jewish day. Uh, to try to win Jews to Christ. And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. So if I were you know, trying to win Jews today and I had an opportunity, I would go when they worshiped, and they worshiped on the seventh day on Saturday. But there came a point in Paul's ministry, you can read about it in Acts 18, where there was such a, a closed heart towards the things of Jesus as being the Messiah. He said, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And so instead of suggestions, you know, adherence to a Sabbath day, the remainder of the New Testament implies just the opposite. And so like you mentioned here in Acts 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to do what? To celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's a local church ordinance. And every first century reader would have understood it that. They, they, they came together to break bread. Um, yes, in 1 Corinthians 16, too. Again, you're really answering your own question here. Paul is urging the Corinthian believers on the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside 
storing up as he may prosper. So he's talking about uh, the church uh, when they meet on the first day of the week, gathering together to set aside a portion of what God has increased to invest in his kingdom. So the Roman Catholic Church has nothing to do with Sunday worship. Uh, That's, again, just a straw man. Seventh-day Adventists create it. It's not true. Um, The New Testament record is plain that we worship on the seventh day of the week. Now, there's coming a time in the future during the millennial reign of Christ when he rules on the earth for a thousand years, when God in his providence will go back and have his people worship on the seventh day. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes the manner in which he deals with his people differs at different times in human history. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a caller who's waiting. We do indeed have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. I got two quick questions, if you don't mind answering. Sure. First of all, I got a problem with Christianity sometimes, because they beg the sinners to come to Christ. They beg, they say, oh, Jesus loves you, come to Christ, Jesus Christ died for you. And the sinner says, no, no, no. But when he finally comes to Christ, and then when he starts, he don't, he don't start living the life that they expect for him to live, then they start criticizing him, or they'll say he's a carnal, or they'll start uh uh, drag, uh, I said, they'll start, uh, you know, uh, church members and the pastors start dogging him out because, oh, he's not living up to his Christian life, or they're rubbing his face, oh, save, always save, and all that. So what's the purpose of him to come to Christ in the first place? Because then later on, you start criticizing him because he can meet the, the Christian life the way they, they expect of him. Well, let me respond to that first. So, um, Conversion takes place in a split second. A person, faster than they can blink their eye, leaves the kingdom of darkness and enters into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. What transpires at the death, burial, and resurrection when we place our faith, our full weight in what Jesus did to pay for our sin that we might be forgiven? Now, it is true that there are spurious conversions. The Bible reminds us of that especially in the parable of the sower, for instance, in Luke chapter 8, and in verse 13, when Jesus is describing a man who goes out and sows seed, he gives the parable in verses 4 through 10, and uh, then he interprets the parable when the disciples ask him, and he says, well, the parable is this, the, the, parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So when we uh, share God's word, it's like seed. That's why Peter can say that we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. I am born of the seed of Richard John Brogy, and my dad is dead and his dad is dead. And I come from a long line of dead people because I was born of perishable seed. But when you're born again, you're born of imperishable seed. And then he interprets what that seed does and how it falls on different kinds of ground, representing different kinds of lives. And in the second seed, or the second soil, he says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now, some people would say, well, they were saved and they lost their salvation. Impossible because Jesus and Luke's gospel and every gospel affirms the eternal security of the believer. So the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And the first three soils, he's giving responses 
that unbelievers have and why they are not genuinely converted, whereas on the fourth soil, the seed that falls in good soil, these are the ones who hear the word of God in an honest and good heart and hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. You're not saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you will persevere. But he's describing some who believe, and people assume that's conversion. But every time the word believe is used in the Bible, it's not necessarily used through someone who's genuinely converted. Obviously, when James says the demons believe, he's not saying that they are genuinely converted. Likewise, there are some people in John 8, they're called disciples. And the word disciple can refer to a convert. The word mathetes just means a learner. It's just someone who learns. And so sometimes it's used of, a, of an unbeliever who's willing to learn. And so there are certain disciples uh, that are learning from Jesus. He's describing certain Jewish men. And again, what's kind of interesting is he uses this same terminology that's used uh, here in the parable of the sower. And these are people who are not converted. Um, it says certain disciples who had believed him. Uh, Well, in what sense had they believed him? They were giving intellectual assent to what he was teaching. And there are some people who come into a church, and they even get excited. They even show joy. They're excited over the message. They, They give intellectual assent to it. But it's not enough to give intellectual assent to something. You have to respond to it as an act of the will. And so it says here, so Jesus was saying to these Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, that's perseverance, that's the mark of conversion, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, they answered, we're Abraham's descendants that have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we shall become free? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And so um, they say, well, we've never been slaved to anyone. Our father is Abraham and so on. And Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said, we were not born of fornication, porneia. Here's 30 years later, that rumor that started about Mary, that she... um, had an illicit relationship before the betrothal period had ended, and that Jesus was the byproduct, that he was born of pornea, fornication. Um, Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And, And then he says in verse 44, you, remember, these are the people, it says, they had believed, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. These are unconverted people, yet they're called disciples. In what sense? They're learners. So context is everything in terms of what uh, the meaning of the word is. And it's true often with words in English today. When I use the word trunk, do I mean what is over a sailor's shoulder? Do I mean what's behind a car? Do I mean what's out in front of an elephant? Do I mean what's at the base of a tree? Context is everything, and there are many words like that even in the Greek New Testament. There are some words that in every instance can mean only one thing, but then there are some words whose meaning changes based on the context in which they are being used, and that's true in most languages of the world today. Now, with that said, 
there are people who come into the church and they have spurious conditions. They say they're saved, but they give no evidence of conversion. Uh, There are other people with whom some believers are just impatient with, and they forget sometimes what they were like when they were first converted. And so they're newly born people. They are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, babes in Christ. And so like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the word so that we may grow in respect to our salvation. So the word of God is a tool the Spirit of God uses to bring about the second birth, but it's also the food. Um, so he likens it to, to milk. In that context, there's a good example where the word milk can be used of simple baby uh, food kind of truths, or it can just be used of the purity of God's word. And that's uh, how Peter is using it. We are to long for the pure milk of the word, that it's, it's pure, it's unadulterated, it's absolutely reliable. And that's how we're going to grow. And so God likens his word, the Bible, to food terms, milk, meat, honey, bread, and so on. And so there are some believers in possibly your church who older Christians shouldn't be mocking, they should be praying for, and they should be teaching them to the standard because they're just brand new Christians and they need to be taught what God says. I remember back in the 1970s, I was a new Christian and there was a a brand new born again believer who'd come to faith and I knew him as a child. We went to grammar school together and he showed up in the same church I was in and I was only had been saved about a year at the time and he had just come to faith and he had hair down to his waist And here he was, comes into this evangelical church, and a couple members are ragging on him because of his long hair. And I just felt like, man, what's your problem? You know, this guy is brand new to the faith. Uh, Yes, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. A man, when you look at him, he shouldn't look like a girl. Uh, God is clear. We should look masculine, just like when you look at a woman, uh, and I'm not discriminating here on how long or how short her hair should be, but she shouldn't look like a man. Uh, A woman's hair is her glory. But this guy was a babe in Christ. God hadn't dealt with that issue in his life yet. They needed to give him a chance. And so sometimes you've got some insensitive, judgmental Christians who are not really committed to helping the new believer to grow. And he is converted. And they're making, you know, assessments of whether or not his conversion is true based on issues of maturity, not necessarily issues of conversion. So I say that not to dismiss the fact that when conversion truly takes place, a person has a new heart, and Jesus can say you can know them by their fruits. And if someone is pleading, well, I'm saved, I'm just one of those carnal, disobedient, rebellious Christians, and that's why I'm living with this woman, and I could care less, but I'm going to heaven— then you're typically listening to the words of an unbeliever, not someone who's really been converted. By the way, I addressed this in a recent sermon I preached in my Revelation series a couple weeks back. It was entitled, Is Your Conversion Real? And if you go to the church website, it hasn't been put up on Search the Scriptures yet because we haven't aired it on the radio, but if you go to communitybiblechurch.us, I think you'll see it on the homepage and you can click on that, and I deal with this issue that you are asking. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, our next caller would like to know about the following. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, there is a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
does this mean they will not go to heaven? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. People have used this term in really two different ways. Let me just turn there. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul makes it very clear. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And by the way, when someone is deceived, the nature of deception is you don't know you're being deceived. So when people are scammed uh, on the Internet or people are somehow able to get their Social Security number or their credit card number or whatever it is, they don't know they're being deceived. Otherwise, they'd not yield that information. That's the nature of deception. And so whenever God in the Bible says, do not be deceived, he knows there's a high potential for people being deceived. And, of course, in the broader context, he's dealing with the subject of sexual immorality. So don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, uh, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, anyone can be saved. In the next verse gives us that assurance, but such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Now, can a Christian commit sexual immorality? Yes, that's why he is addressing the subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, the word Corinthian became a synonym in Greek for someone who is sexually immoral. So Corinth was a city that was covered over in sexual immorality, much like America is today. So, you know, for Super Super Bowl halftime coverage, I learned yesterday, we had pole dancers on national TV. You talk about a sick nation. You talk about a distorted people that, uh, you know, would allow this kind of thing. And there's a taste, there's an appetite for it. Uh, Don't be deceived. Sexually immoral people. And in a similar list, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, he, uh, let me read that list over there. Um, what you have here is an explanation of what took place at the Super Bowl halftime. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. He's talking about the sin nature. The word sarks, flesh, is used in uh, a couple of different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of literal flesh, the skin that covers your skeleton. Sometimes it's used uh, from a worldly perspective. Paul said, there was a time when I looked at Christ according to the flesh from a purely worldly perspective. And I don't any longer, and I don't look at people that way any longer because I see the potential for what they can become. So if a man's a drunk, Paul didn't say, well, that man's a drunk. He's no good. He's a scumbag. He's, he can never be saved. He'd say, no, that drunk is a man for whom Christ died, because then he'll say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But often the term flesh is used in reference to the sin nature within. And that's why he begins his paragraph by saying, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, the sin nature. So is it possible for a Christian to carry out a desire of the sin nature? Yes, absolutely. Um, That's why we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And then he reminds us of the war within that the unbeliever does not have. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And then he says, now here are the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's what, that's what we had uh, on national TV 
immorality, impurity, sensuality. It's on every night, and it was on Super Bowl night, and they featured it. Not to mention there's idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Now listen, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So some would say, well, to get to your original question, 1 Corinthians 6, does this mean you won't go to heaven? Absolutely. That's how Paul is using it here. How do I know that? Because then he will say in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he's saying if you're truly converted, if you belong to Christ, then you have a different practice. Can a Christian go out and get drunk? Yes. Could a Christian watch the impurity and sensuality on the Super Bowl? Yes, they could have. And I'm sad to say I'm sure many did. But if this is your way of life, if this is your appetite, if this is your practice, the key word here is practice, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so when he says, for instance, we're not to be deceived, in 1 Corinthians 9, he speaks of fornicators, premarital sex, and adultery, extramarital sex, and the active and passive partner in homosexual relationships, that people who live like this have no inheritance. He's saying they're not saved. They're not going to heaven, but they can be saved because the next verse says, such were some of you. You have a new lifestyle. You have a new direction in life. You're no longer called adulterers or homosexuals or drunkards. You're called saints. And so now you are to walk in accordance to the call that God has placed on your life. So that's how Paul is using it. And this is a ver- these are verses we need to hear. Because think about this for just a second. We've got major Protestant denominations now who are, well, you've got Protestant denominations that are apostate who have said, in essence, gay behavior is fine. And so the United Methodist Church came out in January, just uh, this past month, that it was, uh, that we need to have a split in the denomination. Uh, We're going to give these conservative Bible-believing Christians, you know, $10 million to help them out, but we need to split the denomination too. Why? Because these stinking United Methodists don't believe the Bible anymore. That's the problem. And the conservatives should have left a long time ago when, when they denied the authority of the Bible. If you're in a United Methodist church, you need to get into a Bible-believing church. You are a part of a denomination that officially, on paper, denies the authority of the Bible. So you're already in a rotten denomination, and there is a place to separate, not on secondary and tertiary issues that are not uh, tests of conversion and true biblical orthodoxy, but when you deny the authority of God's Word, you are listening to an unbeliever. And so, um, but, but forget the United Methodists and, you know, some of the United Church of Christ and the Quakers and all these other denominations that are totally apostate that have endorsed what God calls wicked. Now you've got evangelicals who are questioning whether or not you can be in a good stance with the Lord and endorse same-sex behavior. So it looked impressive when the Church of England came out last week and they said, well, we define marriage between a man and a woman. Okay, well, that's good. That's what God says. Then in the same document, they go on to describe that you can have gay clergy living together 
And as long as they are celibate and they are not engaging physically, then they are in good stance with the church. That's just a bunch of double talk. And that's the same kind of double talk that's going on in the United States where, you know, the PCA is, you know, doing some study. What is there to study about whether or not, you know, a person can call themselves, you know, born again and embrace same-sex attraction? Look, same-sex attraction is no different from heterosexual lust. Those are not morally neutral feelings that should be embraced, as people like Sam Attlebury is teaching. These are feelings that should be repented of and be brought under the sanctifying power of God the Holy Spirit. That's what we are to do with such things. And so this is these are important, important issues that are in the church today. Look, when... When J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, comes out last month, I guess it was in December now, you know, and he says that, you know, if if Rick, you know, now tells me he's a woman and he wants to be called uh, Mary, that I should call him Mary. And if he wants the pronoun she instead of he for me to describe him, then I should do that. That's wicked. J.D. Greer is out to lunch. He is giving wicked, 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 wicked guidance, and he calls those hospitable pronouns in order to win these people to Jesus. That's not hospitable. You're doing those people a disservice. Look, we can preach the truth and still love people without compromising our stance. Transgenderism, just like homosexuality, is just a total rejection of who God is and what he's made you to be. He created you male and female. There's no such thing as transgenderism. And when you come along to accommodate them with hospitable pronouns, that's beyond wicked. That's foolish. And uh, he ought to be fired. If I could fire him, I would, but I can't. But we we need somebody leading the largest Protestant denomination in the nation that at least has some sound thinking to him. And J.D. Greer no longer does. My wife... uh... But uh, what? With many question marks and yes, exclamation yes, yes. points. Yeah. All right. Using your example there. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Jermaine listens to us in Augusta, Georgia, and writes, if a pastor commits adultery, is he allowed to ever pastor again? One denomination just moves their fallen pastors to another church. I believe that a pastor disqualifies himself. Yet two arguments that have been used to refute my position are, The first, King David's adultery and being able to remain as Israel's king, even after God forgave him, has been used to justify a pastor being restored to the pastorate over time, if during that time he lives above reproach. And secondly, it's also said that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, meaning that once God's calling is on a man, he can never lose it. Well, uh, the gifts and calling of God, and uh, that is true, you can apply that principle to spiritual gifts, then when God gives you a, a spiritual gift, he, he doesn't rescind it. If at your conversion, he gives you the gift of serving or mercy or helps or teaching or evangelism or pastor teacher, God doesn't take those away if you sin. Uh, they are given without repentance. And of course, in the context, the gift and the calling of God that he's dealing with there in, in Romans 11 concerns uh, Israel, that God had gifted and called and set apart Israel as a nation, and God doesn't uh, go back on his promises, that just because they are um, 
uh, in unbelief, in rejection, as Romans 10 indicates, God will be faithful to an unconditional covenant that he made. But let's bring it down to uh, a pastor and to David. To use David as an example, I don't think would be a good example, because number one, he's an old covenant saint. And if you were to use him as a test of a pastor, David also had several wives. And would he be considered someone who could be in ministry today? No. Was David a a believer? Well, actually, the Old and the New Testament both tells us that he was even a man after God's own heart. But remember, he lived on the other side of the cross, the other side of um, uh, of Pentecost, and he was never a recipient of the new covenant. And what the new covenant does is it gives you a different kind of relationship. David, under new covenant standards, would be considered lost. So would Solomon. Yet we know both of them will be in heaven. They would be considered lost today. And the promise of a, a new covenant, Ezekiel, for instance, um, I'm just turned here to Ezekiel 36. Moreover, it's talking about the Jewish people, but this in Jeremiah 31 is applied in Hebrews 10 to any believer today. It still has a future fulfillment for the Jewish people and that this chapter of Scripture says that God, independently of their repentance, will gather the Jewish people back into the land. And then after he gathers them into the land, he is going to uh, give them an opportunity to believe. And so the Bible speaks of that happening after the church is removed during the time of Jacob's trouble. Moreover, I will give you, speaking of this future time, but it's available today, a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." So that's something that David never knew. John the Baptist, even though he had a one of those specially unique relationships with the Spirit of God that less than 500 out of all the Old Testament saints ever knew, only about 500, and that's a generous number. But if you want to study this, I cover this in my course on pneumatology that's available at Search the Scriptures. Pneumatos is the word for spirit, so pneumatology is the doctrine or the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's less than 500 believers in the Old Testament that have some kind of a special relationship with him. But even John the Baptist, with the unique relationship with the Spirit, even while in his mother's womb, did not have the same kind of relationship that's available today since Pentecost. That's why Jesus said, a person born of a woman, no one ever greater than John. But the person who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John, because John died before Pentecost came. So take all the air out of the balloon. A pastor commits adultery. Should he be back in ministry? No. Some church that just moves him to another church, my, what a, what a sad, sad, sad picture of a denomination or even if a church is autonomous and they send him to some other place and give him an endorsement, what a sad, sad picture. Could he ever go back into the ministry? Well, it's possible he could. Remember, this is not an issue of forgiveness. It has nothing to do with forgiveness. This has everything to do with what God calls a pastor to be. It's a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of pastor, overseer, elder, those are three words, bishop, all used interchangeably in the New Testament. It's a fine work he desires to do. 
an overseer then must be. In other words, these are not suggestions. These are things that must be in place. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, and so on. Uh, one who manages his own house well, um, not a new convert, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Now, how a pastor could commit adultery and then be considered to have a good reputation with those outside the church is beyond me. It's impossible. That's why you've got unbelievers throwing up over the evangelical church today because there are no standards when it comes to the leaders that God wants to direct his church. Now, maybe after 15, 20 years, a guy might be able to go back into the ministry. I don't know. Um, today with the internet and everything else and Google searches and things that people can do, I'd be pretty hard. That doesn't mean that God can't keep using him and that God can't use his failure as a warning to others where he says, you know, I was once a pastor, but I very foolishly let my heart wander and I committed adultery and, and all that I worked and prepared for, you know, I lost. Don't ever let that happen to you, young man. And, you know, so God could use his failure to teach him. But should he just be moved to another church? The people that are making those kinds of decisions need to have their, you know, brains examined. In fact, they need to take a good look at their heart. Have they not read what God plainly says about leaders in his church? 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. No, he can't go back into the ministry, certainly not anytime soon. So, you know, when I was in Dallas in the 1980s, there was a pastor who was pastoring a church that a Jack Graham now pastors. We played Jack Graham on the radio, and this church grew from like, you know, 100 to 15,000, and it grew on a lot of uh, sugar stick, uh, cotton candy kind of feel-good Joel Osteen kind of doctrine only to find out that Billy Weber, you know, had committed adultery with like 20 women in the church. And so no sooner had he, you know, finally been exposed. In fact, the, the, the thing was so big, and they had built this incredible complex that some of the leaders in the church were aware of what they did, but they know, oh, if we let Billy step down now, we are in real trouble here at Preston Wood Baptist Church because how are we going to pay the bills and everything else? And so they let it go on. Oh, they just gave him a slap. Don't do this again, Billy. But he kept doing it. And then he crashed, and it became public. I'm telling you, within a month, he started a new church. And uh, there was a lady, Mary Kay. She's dead now. She had some kind of cosmetic service, and she underwrote it. She, underwrote it. she was a rich, wealthy woman. But look, this is the sadness of our day. Uh, We need to listen to what God says. We need to get back to his infallible, inerrant word and stop dancing around the truth of what God has plainly said. Well, we're out of time, but thanks for being with us today for the Bible line. And Lord willing, we'll see you again here next week. (music) 